reading this morning is from Matthew chapter 5, starting at verse 31 to 37. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. When I was reading this um, passage this week in preparation for today, it made me think of uh, last summer, Joe and Rachel were kind enough to, uh, they gave us uh, use of their holiday home up in Donegal in a place called Downings. Now, I had heard these legendary stories, uh, mostly from Tim Farrell, so, you know, it can't be too true, um, about how good the fishing was in Downings and how easy it is to catch fish off the, uh, cheers, off the, off the harbour in Downings. So I took my fishing rod, I actually got a new fishing rod on the way. Um, especially for the occasion. And every day, had the timetable, the, t- the tide timetables and everything. Every day we'd go down fishing for a couple of hours. And the uh, first day I was like, I'm going to just be pulling in fish after fish. It's going to be great. Day one, nothing, not a fish, not one single bite. I was like, okay, well, well it's first day, we'll give it time. This went on for fi- uh, five or six days, every single day. And so maybe on the fifth day, it was uh, getting dark, it was at night, and I was down there, I was on the, the harbour wall, and I was fishing, and still no fish. And then finally, it was so dark that I thought, there's no way the fish are going to be able to see, they have to be able to see the lure in the water, it's a reflection, they go for that. And I thought, there's no way the fish are going to be able to see this. But then, I got a fish. And I got this fish, and I was like, finally, after five days, Tim Farrell lied to me. Um, got this fish, and I was reeling it in, reeling it in, I got close to the surface, I could see the fish. And just as I was about to reel out of the water, it wriggled off the hook, and I was gutted, obviously. My only fish. I did get one the next day, though, on my last day, which was good. Um, but it made me, the reason I thought of that story is because what Jesus is talking about here is essentially, in both these things, is about getting off the hook. And, and we love getting off the hook, don't we? We love uh, getting out of things that we don't want to do, right? So it's a common phrase, right? I'm off, you're off the hook on that one. And we love that feeling. Yes, I don't have responsibility in that one. Well, imagine like you make a mistake at work and then actually the boss is like, don't worry about it, you're off the hook. How good does that feel? Or I think sometimes maybe it's like a social thing that you don't want to go to, so you've agreed to go to a kid's birthday party and you're like, man, I really wish I could get out of that. Is there any way I could get out of that? And somehow you make up my to regular way out of it. But we love getting off the hook. We love when things aren't our fault. We love when we don't have to take responsibility. And that's kind of what Jesus is talking about here. So, We've been going through this uh, Sermon on the Mount, um, and I don't know if this is our fifth or sixth week in this, something like that, and we've seen that Jesus is talking about this thing that he calls the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, and in other gospels it's called the kingdom of God, it's the same thing. It's basically this new kingdom, this new way in the world, and it's the way that God always intended things to be, and Jesus has come to restore things to that way. And so it requires a certain way of living that's different to the way the world is right now. And he starts off with the Beatitudes. We see that in the start of chapter 5. These eight kind of statements of what the people of the kingdom are like. So we're the people who are poor in spirit. We're the people who recognize our need for God. We're the people who, who, who desire hunger and thirst for righteousness and all these kinds of things that he goes through. And then he, uh, he says, well, that's what the people of uh, the kingdom are like. And then this is how they interact with the world. So he does this bit about salt and light. We're the salt of the earth and we're the light of the world. We have an effect on the world around us. And then uh, he, he addresses the Old Testament law, right? And he says, actually, this new kingdom is about fulfilling that law. Everything that God has been doing has always been doing all the way through the Old Testament. I've come to fulfill that. And this kingdom, when it arrives, this kingdom that I'm bringing... All of that was actually about this. 
And then he starts to, and he finishes that section by saying, uh, this righteousness of the kingdom, this, this rightness of heart, this right standing before God, it has to be more than what the scribes and the Pharisees were doing. That's what he, he, he says in, in verse 20 of chapter 5. He says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And then he starts and he gives uh, six examples of what that looks like. And he addresses six different aspects of life. And, and John last week uh, looked at the first two, anger and lust. So it's not just enough to say, well, the law says don't murder anyone, so I'm off the hook because I didn't murder anyone this week, right? It's not enough. It's about what's going on in your heart. And then he looks at lust. And this week, in these two, these two examples, he's using the same kind of argument, the same train of thought. If we're going to understand God's ethical commands, the way God desires us to live, then we need to start thinking about what's in here, about what's in our heart. All of these things are all about the heart issue, about issues of the heart, what's going on in the inside. It's not necessarily what you do, it's about why you do it and your motivations behind it. And see, there's something inside of us, that all of us, I think, that makes us not want to take responsibility, Right? Don't you just love, and there's nothing wrong with this, but don't you just love a day off where you don't have any responsibilities. You can do whatever you want to do. It's the best feeling in the world. And those things are important. I'm not saying that. I'm saying to it, well, there's something in us that wants to get out of commitments that we've made. Uh, when, when maybe you've said you'll do something, but it gets a bit tough, your tendency can be to back away from that. Or, or maybe you've made a promise to someone and, uh, and it's actually causing you, you, you pain or hurt or time or money to fulfill that promise. You want to get out of it. You want to get off the hook. And as Jesus uh, teaches through this section on divorce and, and oaths, what he's saying is um, the people of the kingdom are, are people who take responsibility. As people of the kingdom, our words need to match our actions. In other words, what he's saying is uh, as people of the kingdom, we need to be people of integrity. And that's kind of our main theme today. Are we people of integrity? And Jesus explains this by looking at two different things. First, he looks at fidelity in marriage, and then he looks at faithfulness in our words or faithfulness in our speech. So I'm going to pray for us and ask for God's help um, as we uh, kind of look at this a bit more detail, um, and then we'll get stuck in. Uh, Father, we just want to uh, admit to you that um, these things are difficult for us to talk about, especially when it comes to talking about marriage and divorces. That was a painful thing. So just guide us through this, Lord, and help us to be sensitive uh, to people's experiences and, and help us to be sensitive to the pain that exists even in this room because of this subject. Um, Lord, help us to remove our own kind of agendas from this. Help us to hear clearly what you have to say. And thank you, Lord, that you speak into even such a difficult subject as divorce. Um, Lord, help us now as we read your word. Amen. Uh, so firstly then, fidelity in marriage. Why, uh, Jesus, let's look at these. I'll, actually, I'll just read it uh, right off the bat. Uh, I'm just going to read verses 31 and 32 so it's fresh in our minds. Keep your Bible open. Jesus says this, It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now this is a complicated, confusing saying. And I want to start off uh, before I unpack that by saying that this is a subject, divorce is a subject that, that will affect most of us in our lifetimes. Maybe it has already affected you, whether yourself or your parents or your friends. Maybe something you're going through right now. And I, I just want to say that um, I want to be sensitive to that and recognize the pain that exists in that. But also say that Thank God that he does speak into this, right? Thank you God that he speaks into that pain and, and that he doesn't just leave us to try and figure this stuff out on our own, that he actually has something to say about this. So what is Jesus saying in these verses? We need to recognize that um, I think the important as we go through all of these, uh, all of this sermon is that, that the Christian standards, the standards of the kingdom are often much higher than the, the, the standard of, of the world around us. So, in other words, what I'm saying is it's possible for something to be legal in society, but actually sinful. So think about greed, for example. Greed isn't illegal. Greed's perfectly legal. Greed is actually encouraged in our society. Earn as much money as you can and, 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 and make sure you spend it all on yourself. That's, that's perfectly legal. But that's not what the kingdom teaches us. That's not what Jesus teaches us. We're to share with those who don't have. We're to use our money to help those in need. So you see how the Christian standard is often much higher than the, higher, the standard of society. And so what Jesus is doing here when he starts talking about marriage and divorce, 
and the way we use our words, he's calling us to that higher standard and we shouldn't be surprised by this. So I want to look at two questions. What does Jesus say about marriage and what does Jesus say about divorce? Um, actually, what's going on here in Matthew chapter 5 is that, that, that Jesus gives us kind of a short version of a teaching on marriage and divorce that he's going to give later on in Matthew 19. So that's a good place to start. He kind of, what he says here in Matthew 5, he unpacks later on in Matthew 19. So I'm going to throw it up on the screen and we're going to read this together uh, just so we get an idea of, of, of what Jesus is actually saying when it comes to uh, marriage and divorce. Um, and the and Pharisees came up to him and tested him. So they're trying to trick him, right? They're trying to test him. And they asked by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And he answered, have you not read that, that he who created them from the beginning created them male and female? And he said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And they said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And he said to them, Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. So it's interesting in here that, that, that they come and ask him about divorce, but what does Jesus do? He talks about marriage, first of all, right? He puts the emphasis on marriage. So they, they try to trick him. They say, listen, can I divorce my wife for any reason at all? Isn't that, isn't that technically what the law says? And Jesus doesn't talk about how easy it is to divorce. He talks about how holy marriage is, the sanctity of marriage, how important it is. You see, the Pharisees were preoccupied with the grounds for divorce, and Jesus is preoccupied with the sanctity of marriage. And we can never understand what, what God has to say about divorce unless we understand what he says about marriage. So the first thing we see here in this passage in Matthew 19 is that, that God created marriage, right? It's not our idea. It's not a human social construct. It's something that God actually created for his people. And God goes back way to Genesis 1. He says this is the way things have been from the beginning. And he reminds us that marriage is God's idea. It's something, that, it's something that, 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 that God has made for a specific purpose. He's designed it for people. Not something that we have decided, that this would be a good idea. And sometimes I think we get that the wrong way around, don't we? We think that marriage is our idea. But actually it's God's idea. It's God's purpose for his people. And the second thing is, not only does God, uh, has God created marriage, God defines marriage, right? Society doesn't define it. Scripture defines it. God defines it. And we see two things. We see that it's exclusive and it's permanent. In verse 5, he says it's exclusive, right? A man leaves his father and mother and clings to his wife. That's two people in a monogamous, exclusive relationship. They become one flesh. And in verse 6, he says it's permanent. What God has joined together, let no one separate. This sounds like I'm actually at a wedding now, doesn't it? <laughs> but we need to remember it's the two people in marriage are joined together by God. They're not joined by, together by each other. So when, when me and Haley got married, we made vows to each other. Yes, but, but we didn't join us together. God honors our vows and he has joined us together to become one. Like the Spice Girls said. <laughs> Come on. I just came to my head there now. Oh. The Spice Girls. Two become one. The two become one flesh. This is why divorce is always so painful because what happens in divorce is that the one thing is ripped into two pieces. All divorce is painful. All divorce is a tragedy. No one gets married and thinks, well, yeah, I'd like to get divorced someday because it's not the way it's meant to be. And why are these things important? Why does God define, why did God create marriage and why does God define it in this way? Well, kind of a first point in this is that, that marriage represents the gospel, right? Marriage, it's so important that marriage is exclusive and that it's permanent because marriage explains the gospel and the gospel explains marriage. We see this in Ephesians chapter 5. So Paul is teaching the church in Ephesus. He's teaching them about how to live as husband and wife and saying, here's some instructions for your marriages. That's all really good. But at the end, he says this in verses, I think at the end of the chapter, I can't remember the verse. It's probably on the screen. It's on the screen, Chris. Uh, 30, I don't know where we are. Anyway, Ephesians 5, that slide. 
And this is what he says. He says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So he's already quoted what Jesus has quoted. He's already, and Jesus has quoted what the Old Testament has quoted in Genesis. And then he says this interesting thing. He says, this mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Marriage is a profound mystery. It's a, mar- a mystery to me lots of days. Um, it's a mystery because it's not about us. It's about how God has joined himself to us. The mystery of marriage is that the union of a man and a woman in marriage is symbolic of the union that we, the church, have with Jesus himself. This means that marriage is a, a representation of the gospel. That's why God holds marriage in such high regard, right? Because it's about way more than just the two people are in it, Right? If you're married, your marriage isn't about you. It's about Jesus. Your marriage exists for the purpose of showing the world how Christ loves his people. You might think we want to get married because we love each other or because we want to commit to each other. And those things are great and good. But in those things, they're just pointing to how Jesus loves his people. And, and by the way, don't switch off if you're not married because lots of you are planning on getting married, lots of you want to get married, lots of you, um, lots of you hope to get married in the future. And, and if you're single as well, we need single people to hold us to this standard, to remind us that, that our marriages aren't all about us because the temptation for us as married people is to get so wrapped up in our marriage and in our kids that we forget that it's supposed to point to Jesus, that, that our marriage becomes the, the most important thing in our lives, not Jesus. There was an article, um, I, I, it's just funny the things that, how God works these time and things out. There was an article published um, on a website, uh, it's a, a magazine, an online magazine called The Atlantic. And the article was about why more and more couples are choosing to get married by friends, right? So rather than like an ordained person or an, uh, a legal official or something like that. Um, and how um, fewer and few fewer couples are using vows, right? So you might call them vows, but you might just get up and say things about the other person you really like, okay? So I love you, I love the way you look, I love the way you, yeah, kind of thing. Um, And it talked about the deinstitutionalization of marriage. And and here's a quote from this article. It was by um, um, a scientist that had done the research or an anthropologist that had done the research. And he said this, a wedding has become a public statement about who you are as a couple. But this isn't what Jesus teaches us, is it? Your wedding isn't a statement about you. It's a statement about the love of Jesus. So, so having the right people alongside you and, and having the right venue and having you know, flowers and decorations and clothes and all, the, all those things that represent you as a couple, those things are great and good and we want to celebrate you as a couple in your wedding. But they only point to the love of Jesus. Marriage is about God's love for his people not your love for each other. This is why so many marriages struggle in the first year, right? Because, and I speak from experience in that, because you put too much expectation on each other, right? You try to make the other person love you in the way that only Jesus can love you. Please don't expect your husband or your wife to love you the way Jesus does. And if you're thinking about your future husband or wife or you're, you're, you know, you're thinking, someday I'd like to get married to this kind of person, don't expect that they're going to fulfill you. All the married people in the room will tell you that that's not the case, that they're going to let you down. The amount of times I let my wife down, the amount of times she lets me down. But you know who never lets you down or never disappoints? Jesus. He never leaves us. He never dies. He never, he, never, uh, he never betrays you. He always pursues you, always woos you, always desires you. And so we need to see marriage in this way. And when God created marriage in the Garden of Eden, he already had the gospel in mind. He already had Jesus in mind. That's why he created marriage. And so all the marriages before Jesus were, were pointing forward to Jesus and all the marriages since Jesus are pointing back to Jesus and saying, look at how I love my people this way. And so in the first marriage, God made Adam and Eve into one flesh to show them how he would make himself one flesh with his people. Isn't that amazing? We're the bride of Christ, the church, me and you. Nothing can separate us from his love. Christ took the initiative to reconcile us, his rebellious bride. 
And he's pursued us. He's, he's made vows to us. And he's loving us in a way that makes us beautiful. No matter how many times we reject or run away from him, he always pursues us and brings us back. This is why marriage is like the gospel. And so no wonder when Jesus is asked uh, about divorce, he first talks about marriage. Because if our marriages were like this, and this is painful, I know, if our marriages were like this, divorce would never happen. But thankfully, thankfully, Jesus does speak about divorce because the reality is that marriages do break down, right? That's the reality of the world we live in. And when he's teaching about divorce in Matthew 19, he makes the same point uh, as he does in the Sermon on the Mount. And it's this issue of the certificate of divorce, right? Give, give her this certificate of divorce. So, so, so what was happening here was technically in the Jewish culture, under the Jewish law, uh, it said that if you, could, if, if you were going to divorce your wife, um, you could give her a certificate of divorce. Uh, and, and that would show the reasons why you had divorced her. So Jesus is referring to, if you're making notes, you can look this up in Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 to 4. And Jesus is referring to that. And what was happening was, men were sending their wives away for all kinds of reasons. And that left them vulnerable. Because, uh, that left them vulnerable because back then, uh, women wrongly had little or no rights without their husband. They had little or no rights. And that's wrong without a husband. So the certificate of divorce was introduced, not because God designed marriages to end in divorce, but because of the sinfulness of those men, God wanted to protect the women of the society. So in those days, the penalty for adultery was death, and, and so it stopped women from being executed. You couldn't go like, yeah, well, she committed adultery. The certificate protected her and also gave her rights to marry again and therefore provided her with, with, with security within the society. So even in the sinfulness of these men breaking uh, this covenant that's supposed to be exclusive and permanent, God provided a redemption in that. Now what the Pharisees were doing in Jesus' day then, they were using this law, this technicality, this concession that was given to protect the women, they were using it as a way of allowing them to get divorced for any reason without technically, I'm not technically breaking the law, I've written a certificate. So there was this guy, one Jewish teacher, his name was Hillel, and, and it's recorded, uh, he, he, he said, he was going around at this time teaching people, you can divorce your wife for whatever reason, right? You, whatever. And there's literally record, uh, recorded evidence of him saying that you could divorce your wife if she burnt your breakfast. They were twisting the words of scripture. They were twisting the, the heart of what God has designed and allowing them to get well, whatever they wanted, to get off the hook. I don't, I don't, I'm not in love with you anymore. I, I, I don't like the way you look anymore. You've annoyed me. Get out. And Jesus says, no, this is wrong. And so they could go around sleeping with whoever, with different women, just as long as they had a certificate of divorce without technically committing adultery. And Jesus says, you're missing the point. You're, you're not seeing marriage the way it's intended to be. You're abusing women and you're thinking that you're all good because you're not breaking the law. It's the same as what we saw with the, the anger and murder thing. When you haven't murdered anyone, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're not, uh, you're, you're, you're not hurting other people. You're not abusing other people. And Jesus says, you're actually abusing these women. And you're using my law to get away with it. Jesus says, it's wrong. And this is why he says, in these forcible terms, he says, if you get divorced for any other reason, for any reason, it's this, or for any other reason than adultery, it's the same as committing adultery. You can't twist scripture and get away with what you want. You can't twist God's words to get off the hook. Jesus is calling us to higher standard. And our marriages represent the love that he loves us with. So how can we just throw it away whenever we feel like it's not going well? Marriage is permanent. Marriage in the world needs to see permanent marriage. A faithful marriage honestly speaks volumes to the world about who God is and what he is like. But yet, it doesn't always work like this, and we want to recognize that. Life is never black and white. Life is hard. Life is painful. People do get divorced. Sometimes somebody has an affair. Sometimes they're abusive husbands or wives, mostly husbands. Sometimes marriages do end for reasons other than death. So here's the point we need to see in all this. For Jesus, divorce is never commanded, but it is sometimes permitted. 
God never commands divorce. Divorce is always a sad thing. It's always the ending of something that God never intended to end in that way. Now, listen, I'm not saying that it's a sad thing if an if abused a wife gets out of a, 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 an abusive marriage. That, that, that's, I'm not saying that that's a bad thing. But I am saying the fact that that happened in the first place is tra- a tragedy and is sad. And Jesus says, remember, don't, what God has put together, don't, don't separate, don't try to rip it apart. So don't separate your marriage by neglecting your spouse or deserting your spouse or abusing your spouse or being unfaithful to your spouse. Because when you do these things, you're not only destroying people's lives, you're actually abusing the gospel of Jesus. But God, in his grace and his mercy, he does allow for, for, for divorce, doesn't he? And I just want to give us a quick uh, kind of biblical rundown of what this looks like. Malachi uh, 2.16 says, God hates divorce. That's the words. He never intended for divorce to be a thing. Um, but notice what Jesus says in Matthew 19.8. Um, he said, I want to get it right. He said, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. It was because of their sin that that God actually had to create a provision to protect the vulnerable. God actually had to protect a way of, 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 uh, had to create a way of protecting these women who were being abused. It was because of your hardness of heart. It was because of God's mercy that in the midst of our sin, that that, uh, the midst of our desire to get off the hook and get out of things when they become hard, the temptation to run away when you have a fight that you can't seem to reconcile. Because of that temptation, that God does allow divorce in certain circumstances. And, and I'm not talking about reasons, well, we, we fell out of love, or I'm not talking about reasons like we're incompatible, because guess what? We're all incompatible. We're all sinful, and therefore we'll all be uh, selfish going into this thing from the very start. So that's not enough reason. But, but in, in the Bible, what ends a marriage is, is death. Death of a spouse that clearly uh, the Bible teaches that. Now, it doesn't mean if you don't like your, your, your husband that you can speed that up a wee bit. Like, that's not what Jesus is talking about. See the previous section on murder. Um, but death obviously breaks a marriage, right? So, so Jesus is clear. If, 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 your, if your partner dies, then you're free to go and get married again. But it's interesting what Jesus does say about sexual sin. And Paul says the same thing, right? He says sexual sin allows you to, 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 to get divorced. If, if you're... If you're spouse has cheated on you in this way, then you're allowed to get divorced. See, sex is, um, sex is this symbol of the covenant. It's a, it's a sign of the thing that glues us together. And this is why sexual sin in particular is so destructive to marriage. It's a sign of the covenant. And the word that Jesus uses and that Paul uses, it's more than just actually having an affair or committing adultery. He uses this word called pornea. It's where we get our word pornography from. And it's all kinds of sexual sin, right? So it means pornography. It means incest. It means bestiality. It means all kinds of sexual things. So, so in other words, you don't have to be having an affair to be cheating on your spouse. Do you get me? So men, if you're looking at porn, then you're breaking your marriage vows. And by the way, if you're single... Remember last week, it's just as bad. And women, if you're fantasizing about being with someone other than your husband, then you're breaking your marriage vows. This is how seriously God takes these things because remember, marriage reflects the gospel and Jesus would never desert us in that way. And the third thing then that breaks the marriage is, is desertion of the marriage. If, 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 if we're in 1 Corinthians 7, we're... Paul says that if, if, a, if an unbelieving spouse, if a spouse who isn't a Christian, actually runs away from the marriage, then you're free. The marriage is over. Now, of course, we always try to be reconciled. Of course, we always try to pursue forgiveness. We always lead people towards faith and repentance, right? But if that person doesn't repent and, and is unwilling to be reconciled, then the marriage is over. And the fourth, fourth thing, and I want to be very sensitive about this, but also very clear, abuse. All kinds of abuse. And it doesn't mean that physical abuse. It means physical abuse, emotional abuse, financial abuse, mental abuse, all kinds of abuse. You don't have to be hitting someone to be causing them real damage. And please be, please hear me when I say this. God doesn't inquire, require you to stay in an abusive marriage. Um, a very... Recent, a very, very recent statistic says that one in four women 
in Northern Ireland will experience domestic abuse. And that's wrong. And if that's you, then you need to get out. And you need to come to us and we'll protect you. I want to be really, really clear. As a church, we will always protect anyone who's been abused and we'll never cover it up. Always protect you. If any of these are you, then, then you need to talk to your MC leader. You need to talk to come and talk to me. I'm happy to listen and I want to support you. We want to support you and, and guide you and lead you because, because marriage is important. It's important that we salvage marriages where we can. It's important that we follow God's teaching on this because it's so important because it represents the gospel. And this is why when he's asked about divorce, Jesus talks about the sanctity of marriage. He reminds us gently as Jesus that, that if, we, if we follow the way God has intended marriage to be, then divorce wouldn't be necessary. But he also recognizes that it is. So why does Jesus include this here? Why is he, what's the point of this? When he's talking about this righteousness that needs to exceed, that needs to be more than being just good living, right? Because how many marriages have we heard of or do we know of in our families and extended families that look good from the outside but are actually tragic on the inside? The point of this is because marriage is a picture of the gospel. That's the key to understanding Jesus' teaching on divorce. That's why God limits the circumstances that divorce is permissible. Because God holds marriage so highly, we need to work to avoid divorce as much as we can. So we don't, we don't try to get off the hook just because we, we feel like we don't love that person anymore. We're people of integrity. We're people who keep our vows because that's what Jesus does for us. So that's fidelity in marriage. Then Jesus goes on to talk about faithfulness in speech. So I wonder, when I was thinking about this, I was thinking about, and I was chatting to Haley about this this week, like I wonder how much time do we spend thinking about the words that we say? The things we say, the way we say it, the words we use. Like, do I give much consideration to the actual words that, that come out of my mouth? My dad always used to say to me, he's like, you need to put your brain into gear before you put your mouth into action, right? Because I have the tendency to just eh, open my mouth and whatever's in there just falls out, right? And that's not a good thing. In Proverbs 10, 19, it says, um, where words are many, sin is not absent, right? So it's this idea that when we use too many words and when we're not careful about what we say, then the tendency to be sinful in that, the tendency to hurt people, the tendency to, to, be, uh, to lack integrity and lie and all those kinds of things is, is present when we use too many words, when we don't think about the words we use. Think about the words that, that we make meaningless, right? So, I love my wife, but I also love coffee, right? I love a good beer, right? Come on, that's ridiculous. I've made that word meaningless. Or um, God is awesome, but this new iPhone, that is awesome, right? Think about the things that we say. We, we, our tendency is to make words meaningless. But for God, words are sacred. In fact, the only way we know about God is because he's given us words, Think about what, uh, what the Bible says in John chapter 1, the, the, the first 18 verses of that. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was in the beginning. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. God spoke the universe into being. He, he declared it and it became so through his words. Words are extremely important for God. And the point that Jesus is making here is that we need to say what we mean and mean what we say. Say what we mean and mean what we say. And you can see how that kind of relates to the marriage thing as well. Follow through on our commitments. So let's look, let's remind ourselves of verses 33 to 37 again. Jesus says, Again, you have heard that it was said, of those, uh, said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, Do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God. Or by the earth, for it is his footstool. Or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. So Jesus isn't quoting like one specific Old Testament passage here. What he's doing, he's kind of given a summary of, of um, lots of different laws in the Old Testament about the way we speak and, and making vows and promising things. Um, but we need to be really clear. So when we see in verse 34 that Jesus says, uh, do not take an oath at all, 
Some people have taken that to mean that Christians shouldn't make promises. Christians shouldn't swear by it. And so there's actually some Christians, when they go to court, they'll, 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 refuse, to, they'll refuse to swear that their, their, their testimony is true. They'll say, well, well, you know, I'm a Christian. That's against my religion, and, and so I don't have to do that. You should take my word as true. Um, but, but this isn't what Jesus is saying, is it? Um, because promises and vows are all over the Bible, Right? Um, we see in, in Genesis that Joseph uh, makes, his, uh, makes his sons uh, swear an oath that they're going to actually bring his bones with them into the promised land. Kind of a weird one, but I guess he really wanted to go to the promised land. That, that they would get his bones out of Egypt with them when the time was ready for them to leave. David makes an oath, swearing an oath of loyalty to his friend Jonathan. In the New Testament, Paul, he, he actually makes Timothy like swear by, by God and all the angels of heaven that he would continue in his work preaching the gospel. He makes him swear an oath. Even, Ma, even, um, even Jesus on his trial in Matthew 26, like he accepts the courtroom terms that he is speaking under oath and he speaks under oath in that way. And, and, and God makes promises. We, we've just talked about marriage, which is a God-ordained kind of promise between two people. He enters into covenants. So the issue, uh, the issue that Jesus is talking about here isn't the practice of making promises. It's about the meaning and the tensions behind the promises. Like all the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is talking about your heart. What's in your heart? Jesus' concern, uh, Jesus concern here is that, that the people are swearing oaths and making vows to just mask their own dishonesty, right? So he's talking about when you make a promise that you have absolutely no intention of keeping. You ever do that? See, the, the Pharisee did come up with, again, had come up with a very clever way of getting around this, right? They're, the, they're kind of the expert, expert level good living people, right? Um, in Matthew 23, like, Jesus has another discussion with them about, about this subject, about swear, making vows and swearing oaths, right? So they had these levels of, of swearing, right? So you could, um, you could swear on the, the, the building of the temple itself, and you wouldn't be bound by that. But if you swore on the gold of the temple, then you wouldn't be bound by that. Or you could swear by the altar, the actual altar itself, and you wouldn't be bound to keep that. Um, but if you swore by the gifts that were placed on the altar, then you were bound to keep that. So, hey, you, you, didn't, uh, you didn't help me move house. Well, I only swore on the temple, so I wasn't bound to keep it. I'm off the hook here. That's what they were doing, right? And, and I think that we all do this. So imagine when someone sa says, hey, do you fancy doing this thing? And you're like, oh, yeah, yeah that sounds good. But you know, you know you're not going to follow through on that. You're just like, oh, yeah, that sounds good. Yeah, whatever. Like, how often do we do that? And Jesus says, no, say what you mean and mean what you say. And Jesus, he speaks into this here in Matthew 5. He says, it doesn't matter what you swear on. It's your heart that matters. Everything is God. So no matter what you swear on, if you've no intention of keeping it, you're taking God's name in vain and you're making words meaningless. You're devaluing the very name of God and you're devaluing your own words. So he says, don't swear by heaven. Because that's God's throne. Don't swear by the earth. That's God's footstool. Don't, don't swear by Jerusalem. That's the, the city of the king. Don't even swear by the hairs in your head. Because God made you. Don't use God to get off the hook. Don't come up with clever ways to get off the hook of not following through in your commitments. You see how this relates to the marriage side of things? They had rendered words meaningless. So... For us, we're probably not going around swearing on the, the temple in Jerusalem... But do you ever hear people saying, I swear to God, or I swear in my life, or I swear in my mom's grave? I say, I hate that one. Saying these things render our words meaningless. They make us untrustworthy. What about, uh, what about when you say, say to be honest with you, like you haven't been being honest all the time before? Or you say, honestly, what, what, so can I not trust what you said before? This is not the kingdom way. People need to be able to trust what we say. In the kingdom, we say what we mean and we mean what we say. This is why Jesus says in verse 37, let what you say simply be yes or no. Will you be there for me? Yes. Will you let me down? No. Then prove it. These words have simple and profound effects on the way that we live. See, the only way that people are going to know that they can trust you and believe you 
and rely on you is when you say what you mean and mean what you say. This is the way of the kingdom. This is what it means to be the people of the kingdom, to live the kingdom of God here and now, to live with integrity, to let the gospel shape everything we do and we say. Actually, and who doesn't want to be that person? Who doesn't want to be around that type of people? I want my friends, I want my brothers and sisters, I want the people around me to be people that I know when what they say I can believe. Just flat out, straight up, believe them. Trust them. Live with integrity. And he adds this warning here, doesn't he? Verse 37, look at the end of verse, he adds this one at the end of verse 37, he says, let what you say simply, be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. The word that's used there is really, um, comes from the evil one. Words that lack integrity come from the devil. That's what Jesus is saying. They come from the evil one. You see, the Sermon on the Mount, this is why this is so important, because the Sermon on the Mount is showing us how to model God. We're showing how to live the way of God. We're showing how to live, the, we're, 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 Jesus is teaching us how to live the way of God, how to model God. And if we're not modeling God, then we're modeling the evil one. Listen to what Jesus says about the devil, about the enemy in John 8. He says, you are the father of, you, you, you are of your father, the devil, and you, your will is to do your father's desire. He, the devil, was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in truth because there is no truth in him. When he, li- when he, when he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. This is who the devil is. And it's the opposite to who God is. Right? God is true and he is of truth. Hebrews 6.18 says that that God cannot lie. Jesus says that he is the way, the truth. He is the truth. Not that he tells the truth, but he is the truth and the life. And so when we we say what we mean and we mean what we say, when we follow through and we're people of integrity, we're, 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 we're modeling God. We're not modeling the evil one. So in other words, we're to be people of truth because God is truth. We're to be people of truth because God is a God of truth. And people of integrity like that, we don't make promises that we, don't, we can't keep. We don't make promises that we, we won't keep, that we've no intention of keeping. People of integrity, people of the kingdom of God, what we do is we say, uh, I have promised to do this. I've said I'll do this. So I'm going to follow through even if it hurts me, even if it inconveniences me, even if it causes me pain. Why? Because we serve the one who did this, right? This is what the cross proves. Chris Lewis, who you remember was here a few weeks ago, he says this. He said, um, He said that Jesus swore to his own hurt. He made a promise. I will never leave you or forsake you. And he proves it on the cross. He followed through in his promise. In the garden he says, Father, if there's any other way, just let let this not happen. Let this pass from me. But not your will, mine be done. I'm willing to do this because I said I will do this. So can I just challenge you this morning, are you a person of truth? Are you a person of your word? Can people trust you? Do you follow through? What does this look like in real life? Well, what about honesty in your home? What about integrity in your home? Right? If you're married, then going back to the marriage theme, if you're married, then all, all married couples have made vows and, and promised to keep them for better or for worse. Marriage itself is based on a promise between two people. And every divorce that happens, not only is it a tragedy, it happens because one or both of those people have broken their marriage promises with each other. The covenant is broken. So, so let's endeavor, those of you that are married and those of you that are planning to get married, and let's endeavor to, to be truth-tellers in our marriage. Let's, let's endeavor, let's try to, um, to be, have integrity in our marriage. I'll be home at six, then be home at six. I'll make the dinner, then make the dinner. I'll forsake all others, then forsake all others. In your words, in your thoughts, in, your, in, your, in the privacy of your own mind. Forsake all others. We, we make promises all the time in our, uh, in our homes, don't we? So, so the best way to make sure that we, that we avoid the tragedy of divorce is to just let your yes be yes and your no be no. 
even if it costs you, and it will, even if it hurts you, and it will. Because this is what Jesus has done. What about, what about honesty in the workplace? Right? No skiving off. You've entered into a contract. You said, I'm going to do this many hours work for this amount of money. Then do it. I'm going to follow through. I'm going to be the guy who works right up to my break time at lunch. I'm not going to skive off early. And if I need to get away early, I'm going to tell the boss that I want to get away early. Not wasting time. Doing what you said you would do. What if you're an employer? What about if you have employees and you've agreed to pay them this amount of money? Then don't try to get around that. Treat them fairly. Treat them generously. Do what you said you would do. This is how we have integrity in the workplace. What about honesty in church? Are you, are you honest with your MC? Are you honest with your missional community? Can they trust you? Do you deceive them about how well you're doing? Are you pretending that things are better than they actually are? Or actually maybe you're pretending things are worse than they actually are because you get more sympathy or attention or whatever. Are you lying about things that you're struggling with in your life? Are you lying about the sin in your life? If you say you'll be there to help someone out, to, to move house or, or to, to paint their wall or to whatever it may be, sit with their granny or babysit their kids, do you show up when you've agreed to do that? If you've agreed to serve on a Sunday morning in some way, can, can, people, can you be relied on to do that? Can, can people trust, well, that person said they'll be here, so they'll be here. If you're a member, if you're a covenant member of this church, then you've literally signed a covenant to be present, to give, to serve, and to live out the gospel in your life. Are you faithful to your word? And what about honesty in our mission, right? And I think this is key. This is, this is a really important one because our standard of life is that our yes means yes and our no means no because we represent Jesus. Our standard for life is that our yes means yes and our no means no because we represent Jesus. Now, if we're known to be truth tellers and we prove it with our actions, then people will have no cause to doubt us when we share the gospel with them. So what I'm saying is that truth telling is vital for the way we share Jesus with people. It's vital for evangelism. You know me. Listen, you know me. You know you, know you can rely on me. I've proved it. You know I always tell the truth. You know that my yes is yes and my no is no. So, so why would I lie to you when I'm telling you about Jesus? Let me tell you about what this has done for my life. Let me tell you about what Jesus has done for you. Our honesty gives credence to our testimony. It, 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 gives, it, um, it gives it authority. So how do we tie all this together? Because that's a lot. I feel like that's a lot in a lot of content. Jesus could say it in like that much. I could say it over you know, an hour or whatever. How do we do these things? How, how do we live with fidelity in our marriages to that standard that God holds us to? And how do we, how do we, um, how do we live with faithfulness in our words? I think, by the way, I think that faithfulness in the words thing, I think that's a really key, uh, that, that's something that is just missing in our society, isn't it? That is just something that is absolutely missing. Imagine if you could believe what politicians said Imagine if you said, well, they've said it, so therefore it's true. Wouldn't we want our politicians to be that way? So if we want our politicians to be that way, why would we not want our, ourselves to be like that, that way? Or you, imagine if you're buying a house or, or you're going to rent a house. You don't just say, yep, I'll pay this. No, it's contracts and contracts and contracts. Actually, someone, a friend of mine who was, uh, used to be a lawyer, and he was saying that on his first, his first day and his first job as a, as a lawyer... His boss gave him a contract and said, you have until tomorrow morning to give me all the reasons why the person who signed their name in this contract doesn't have to fulfill this contract. This is the world we live in. We need truth tellers. That's a little aside. Our society needs integrity. So how do we do it? How do we live with this fidelity in our marriages and our lives and how do we live with integrity in our words and our actions? Because the truth is, right, and you have to agree with me because it's true, we all break our promises, right? I've broken many, many promises. I've had many promises to me broken, and so have you. And we all try to wriggle off the hook. We all try to get out of responsibility, whether it's in our marriage or whether it's in the things that we say. 
This is why we're utterly dependent on Jesus. Because he's never broken a vow, right? He, he will never break his promises. We're the promise breakers and he's the promise keeper. And so we need Jesus to keep our vows and to maintain our marriages. And the answer isn't just to keep trying hard, right? I'm going to try really, 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 really hard. Because if you do that, you're going to get frustrated because pretty soon you're going you're gonna to break a promise. And you'll just feel terrible. But the answer is to rely on the grace of God, right? So we want to stay closely connected to Jesus because he's the promise keeper. We need to rely on Christ living in us. We, the Bible says that we've died to ourselves it's no longer us who lives, but it's Christ who lives in us. Philippians 2.13 says this. God works for his, uh, uh, Christ who works in me to will and work for his good pleasure. We just remember that Christ lives in us. We rely on his strength. So when we mess up, we, 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 uh, we repent and we ask for forgiveness of the person we betrayed or let down. And we remember that God's grace covers all of that. We remember the gospel. We were all adulterers, Right? The Old Testament is just full, full of this language. You read the, if you read the, the book of Hosea, it's just full of this language of, of the people of God being an unfaithful bride, just betraying God. And that's us. We were all adulterers. We were all unfaithful to God. But God is never unfaithful to us. Never. Always keeps his word. And, and here's something amazing about this divorce thing. God gave us this concession, these, these ways that, that, that we can end our marriage vows because of, because of the sinful world we live in and because of the sin in our hearts. But here's the amazing thing. God will never, ever take that provision for himself. God never allows divorce for himself. He's never going to divorce you. He's never going to leave or forsake you. He, he's never going to stop pursuing you. And the proof of this is the cross. The proof of this is Jesus on the cross, right? He laid down his life in order to keep his promise to you. This is what the gospel is all about. So can I just finish by saying this? If, if you're married and, you're, and your marriage isn't great, if you've, if you've been hurt, if you've been betrayed, if you've been let down in any way, Remember that Jesus will never hurt you or betray you or let you down or, or break his promises. Or maybe you're the one that's been unfaithful, whether in your marriage or with your friends or maybe you've broken promises even this week. Then remember this, that no matter how many times you hurt people or, or betray them or let them down, uh, Jesus will never let you down. And in him there's forgiveness for that. We are the bride of Christ. We are his bride. He's pursued us. He's won us through his death and resurrection on the cross. He's made us his own. And now he's pursuing us day by day to make us beautiful. And he'll never leave us, never forsake us. Let's pray.